Kind of reminds me of the pastor who was voted the most humble pastor in America. So the congregation gave him a medal that said to the most humble pastor in America. The next Sunday he wore the medal, so they took it away from him. <laughs> That's what this is like. On a t-shirt was written, I am humble and proud of it. Written somewhere else were the words, no, I am not conceited even though I have every right to be. Humility is a tricky thing. It is a virtue which, if you think you have it, you probably don't. It is said that D.L. Moody used to pray, Lord, make me humble, but don't let me know it. Amar Dihan used to say, humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have it. George Washington Carver, the scientist who developed hundreds of useful products from the peanut, loved to tell his audiences this story. He'd say, when I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. <laughs> Scripture's clear as to God's choice for kingdom work. God is not looking for people who can present a big, good resume, but those who are small enough for him to use. And that takes us to our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. And these seven verses in 1 Peter 5 speak to humble shepherds, humble sheep. If you're not there, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And while there may be many approaches to this passage this morning, it is this matter of humility that's going to get our attention. Humble shepherds, humble sheep. It's all about being small enough to be used by God. Now, this is not an easy sermon to hear. But believe me when I tell you that it was not any less comfortable for me to prepare this for this morning. If we are to live life on purpose, as this book of 1 Peter has been challenging us, we must wrestle with this fundamental attitude of humility. And is there anything that will destroy a church faster than the attitude of pride that pervades the life of the church? Humble shepherds, humble sheep. Well, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, there are several aspects to humility as seen in these seven verses. Really, there, there are probably five or six of them. I'll boil them down to three. Three aspects of humility that we see in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. First of all, it takes humility to serve for the right reasons. It takes humility to serve for the right reasons. Peter begins here by this section by addressing elders. Notice that it's plural. And that Peter levels the playing field by including himself as a fellow elder. He says in verse 1, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Now, I need to remind you of what we just looked at in the verses prior to to chapter 5, verse 1. Now remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original, original writings of Scripture. 
And while most translations, unfortunately, don't include the word therefore in verse 1, it is there. It is there to tie into what was just seen in chapter 4. And what was the subject of the verses just prior to this? Do you remember? How to live triumphantly in the face of suffering. Peter spoke about expecting suffering, not being surprised by it back in chapter 4, verse 12. And these persecuted believers needed encouragement to keep on living for Christ in a hostile world. They should entrust themselves to their faithful creator, continue to make godly choices even when the going is tough. And that's the note chapter 4 ended on in verse 19. And then he says, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore. In other words, in light of these difficult times, Peter says, therefore, this is how you ought to relate to each other in the church. And he begins by exhorting the elders. And perhaps there's no more critical time for godly, humble leadership than when the heat is on, when the church is going through suffering. And so he says in verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock. Whose flock? It isn't my flock. It isn't your flock. It isn't Pastor So-and-so's flock. Whose flock is it? It is God's flock. Let that sink in. Do you find yourself saying, this is my church. Mine. Don't mess with it. My church. Or this is my ministry. Whose flock is it? And these shepherds ought to view people as God's precious possession. Peter goes on. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. In this one section, we find three words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament to speak of spiritual leadership in the church. Elders, shepherds, that could be translated pastors, and then thirdly, overseers. Use interchangeably. And what is the charge to these spiritual leaders? It can be summed up in the verb that's used in verse 2. Be shepherds. Be shepherds. Have you stopped to think why God chose the term shepherd and the term sheep to describe leaders and the church? Have you thought about that? What do we know about sheep? Now, I've never worked on a sheep farm, so I'm dependent on my reading of other sources to help fill in some of the gaps in my own understanding. But what do we know about sheep? Well, often our first thought about sheep is that they aren't very bright. Now, I don't, I'm not so sure about that, maybe. But there are definitely some distinctives about sheep that in many cases are vastly different than a lot of other animals. One thing about sheep is that they're capable of being totally lost within just a few miles of its home. It knows its own pasture, yes, but taken into unfamiliar territory becomes completely lost and dependent on the shepherd to help find its way. Without a shepherd, a lost sheep would just walk around in circles, be disoriented, and totally helpless to find food or water for themselves. See, the words 
All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. And Jesus' words of the lost crowd as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd give you a sense of the need for a shepherd for the sheep to find its way. Sheep are particularly vulnerable to dying if left alone. They are easy targets to be led astray since they are innate followers. There is perhaps no animal in the world as defenseless as a sheep. They cannot defend themselves. When they're attacked by a predator, they don't kick, they don't scratch, they don't run away. They're dead meat or dead wool. They're done. Sheep need constant attention. I'm talking about the animals still. But do you wonder? Do you wonder, though, if God created sheep just to make a spiritual point? And for God to call the leaders over his church shepherds is not a flattering term. The lowest people on the social ladder in Bible times were shepherds. It's a messy, dirty job. It's been said, if you can't stand the smell of sheep, don't be a shepherd. (laughs) Some might need to take that advice. And when God speaks of a model for leadership, the picture does not come from the world of sports. The picture does not come from the world of theater. The picture does not come from from academia or institution or, or the business world. The picture comes out of the fields of Judea. Now, that isn't to say effective shepherding doesn't involve organizing and planning and coaching and researching, and and certainly it involves teaching, but that all of that is under the umbrella of shepherd. Shepherds stand in front of the sheep and lead them rather than stand behind them and drive them. Shepherds look over their shoulder and make sure the sheep are following The old proverb goes, he who thinketh he leadeth and hath no one following him is only taking a walk. (laughs) That's it. He better be looking and making sure sheep are following. What does it take to lead like this? Humility. Humility. And that thought runs counter to what the world says. The business world says you have to be a big shot to make it. You must be aggressive and and forceful and self-confident, self-assertive, and and not be a pushover if you're going to make it as a leader. Are those the same kind of qualifications for God's program? Is he looking for big, the VPs and, and, and CEO types? No. Stories told about Teddy Roosevelt at Sagamore Hill after an evening of talk, he would take one other of the big shots with him and and, and go out on the lawn and and then search the skies for a certain spot. certain spot of a star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And then Roosevelt would recite as they're looking up at the vast universe with this other big shot right next to him. He'd say, that is the spiritual galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. 
And Roosevelt would grin and he'd say, now I think we're small enough, let's go, go to bed. <laughs> we think we're too big, go outside and look at the universe. And see all that God created, and then see how big you feel. Maybe before we walk into church in the morning, or maybe before we were ready to serve, or maybe before we're ready to go out our door to, to, to start our day, we ought to look at the vast universe and start looking at all that's out there and going, wow, I'm pretty small. All right, I'm ready to be used by God. The immediate charge here is to the elders, but there's an application fitting to all who serve. Notice the several phrases that Peter uses to get his point across. He goes into this, into this uh, uh, contrast that he sets up of it's not this, but it's this. So we need to be serving for the right reasons. It takes humility to do so. It's not this, but this. We pick it up in the middle of verse 2. He says, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you. You see, God's people are allotted to leaders but being examples to the flock. These three admonitions could be summed up this way. Serve not out of duty, but delight. Serve not for personal gain, but from the privilege of service. Serve not driven by the love of power, but a life to be patterned. It was Abraham Lincoln who aptly put it, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And it's safe to say that if your service to God right now is more out of power and, and, and feeding your ego and des- rather than desiring to be an example. It's safe to say if your service to God right now is more out of a duty than a delight. Or if it's more out of what you get out of it rather than be seen as a privilege. That the root issue is likely pride. You said, I've never been, I'm not appreciated. I'm out of here. You better look at these verses again. Better look at your own heart, as I must too. The distinguishing mark that set God's leaders apart is humility. It's not to say that nothing else matters. It's not to suggest that there aren't any other qualifications. But if a person is not small enough to be used by God, then no matter what other skills he may possess, he is not fit to be God's leader. Humility requires we serve for the right reasons, and the greatest motivation of all is the fact that we do what we do for the chief shepherd, it says in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You see, shepherds and sheep have this in common. We are all under Christ as the chief shepherd, all of us. Christ rules. Christ is in charge. Humble shepherds, humble sheep. It's God's way. It takes humility to serve for the right reasons. Secondly, humility will be revealed in our relationships. The second aspect of humility that we see in this passage is that humility will be revealed in our relationships. Look at verse 5. Follow along with me. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Peter targets young men, I think, because it might be in their idealism and in their impatience that they may be the first ones to challenge those serving in leadership. 
And the word to these young men is, before you can ever lead, you must learn to follow. You must learn about submission. I mean, how many times have we witnessed uh, great leadership potential in someone that never comes to, to bear, never comes to fruition because of this one character flaw? They never learn to submit. It starts there. If King David missed that in those years while Saul was king and he was playing second fiddle, would he have been called a man after God's own heart? Not likely. He had to learn to submit first. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York York Philharmonica Orchestra, was once asked to name name the most difficult instrument to play. The most difficult instrument to play. And without hesitation, he replied, the second fiddle. I get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Are you small enough, am I, to be second fiddle? In 25 years of being in the church, I have seen many gifted and talented people who were not used by God in the way that they could have been used by God because they never learned to slay their own pride. They they always had to be in charge. They, They never learned to submit to someone else's leadership and authority. They were too big for God. And this issue of submission extends well beyond young men. If you desire to be a leader, if you desire to be a leader so you can straighten everybody else up, you have a lot to learn about spiritual leadership. If you find it easy to discredit leadership, then you have not even begun to grapple with what is involved in leadership and what is involved in submission. And just as there's nothing more discouraging to sheep than irresponsible, power-hungry leadership, nothing is more disheartening than sheep who do not hold respect for those in spiritual authority over them. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Humility will be revealed, how? In our relationships. It is not seen in a vacuum. And the word to all sheep and the word to all shepherds, the middle of verse 5 is, all of you, all of you, no exception, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And when Peter says clothe yourselves, he uses a very rare word. J.B. Phillips translates it, put on the overalls of humility. Get down right where the the rubber meets the road. Roll up your sleeves. And the word describes the apron a slave wore. It's the kind of apron Jesus tied around his waist the night he he washed the disciples' feet. The meaning is, And your dealings with others, put on the apron of humility and be ready to wash dirty feet. That's the idea. And if you've not put on this apron of humility, if I have not put on this apron of humility, we are not ready to serve. We are not ready to move about in service. Are you reaching for the towel or the throne? One night, you know, we can talk about humility all we want. 
comes down to how we respond when a situation presents itself. One night, a man decided to show his wife how much he loved her. So after dinner, he began to recite romantic poetry, telling her he would climb high mountains to be near her, swim wide oceans, cross deserts in the burning heat of day, and even sit at her window and sing love songs to her in the moonlight. After listening to him go on and on and on for some time, this immense love that he had for her, the conversation quickly ended when she asked, but will you do the dishes for me? (laughs) said, we can talk it all we want. We can say, oh yeah, I'll do this, and I would be willing to do that. Oh yeah. You willing to wash his feet? Not that, Lord. Uh Uh-huh. Humility isn't the defining mark in the life of the church. We lose our effectiveness. Are we small enough to be used by God? Am I humble? And you can ask yourself some questions. Determine whether you are or not. Do I think more about serving or being served? It's a good question. Do I think more about giving than taking? Do I think more about responding and demanding. Will you dare pray as you begin each day, Lord Jesus, I would so appreciate it if you'd bring me someone today whom I can serve. Will you pray that? Be ready. It takes humility to serve for the right reasons. Humility will be revealed in our relationships. And thirdly, humility and how we handle anxiety go hand in hand. That's the third aspect of humility. Humility and how we handle anxiety go hand in hand. Now, what's the connection between humility and anxiety? Often we know and we quote verse 7 at the exclusion of verses 5 and 6. The NIV has verse 7 as a separate sentence than what just came before it. Listen, it is one continuous thought in the original. It should be read like this, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time by casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Or simply put, Humble yourselves by casting our cares on him. That's what it's saying. Now, it might be saying that humility brings on a certain anxiety to it, but I don't think so. I think the thought really is we humble ourselves by throwing our worries upon God. Now, what is meant by casting all our anxieties on him? Well, the only other time the word casting is used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 19, verse 35. It's prior to our Lord's triumphal entry and the disciples who were sent to to get the colt that Jesus was to ride on. And it says in Luke 19, 35, they brought it, meaning the colt, to Jesus and casting their garments on the colt, they set Jesus on it. What a picture of what we are to do with our anxieties, our worries, our cares, and our stresses. Picture, will will you, that matter that has you all worked up right now. Can you think of one? You say only one? (laughs) Think about that that stress that, that seems too weighty for you to carry. That worry that's just strangling the life out of you. That that anxiety. That worry that is in your hands. Do you have one in mind? 
That is to be thrown onto God as baggage in our hands, garments is thrown onto the animal. If that baggage is on the animal, then it means we're no longer carrying it. What we really like to do is carry it and then sit on the, on the, on the animal. <laughs> and that's what God wants us to do with our worrying. Whatever it is, whatever that thing is that we're, that's worrying us right now, is cast it on him. Throw it onto God. He wants to carry it for you. There is a garment we are to put on, humility. There's a garment we are to throw off, worry. And who doesn't carry some anxiety right now? Spiritual leaders carrying the burden of ministry? Single moms trying to make ends meet and juggling single-handedly the demands of parenting? Teenagers trying to fit in and and carrying the weight of so-and-so doesn't like them anymore and all these relational fallouts. Seniors in high school worrying about their next step. Those involved in people's lives and, and those worrying if they might lose their job. Parents having to release their grown children. Oh, there's anxiety over guilt and the pressure to perform and aging and and loneliness and the upcoming lab work and the confrontational meeting with a friend, the deadlines at work, too much bills left at the end when our money is gone, and on and on and on it goes. What garment of anxiety are you holding on to right now? Will you throw that onto the God who wants to carry it for you because he cares for you. He cares for you. To what degree do you really believe that? You say, right now, it doesn't, doesn't seem like he cares for me that much. Doesn't seem like he gives really a hoot what's going on in my life. This is where humility comes into this matter of anxiety. It's all about being small. If I am anxious it likely means that I secretly know better than God what needs to be done. <laughs> it suggests that I really, I really could do a better job handling life's problems. It is that anxious, stressful situation, however, that backs you into a corner where you must admit, I don't have the big, bigger picture. I don't see all the connections. It takes humility to trust God with the outcome and that he will lift you up when? In due time. No, now, in due time. We don't see the big picture, folks. We can't see all the connections. For example, let's say that tomorrow morning you're heading out to an appointment or or to work or to something else you need to go to and you can't find your car keys. Now, for some of you, you might be saying, well, what else is new? That's a regular occurrence. Let's suppose that at that moment, you instinctively, you ask God for help. Lord, please help me locate my keys. So you took the thing that that was concerning you and causing you some anxiety, potentially, and you cast it on the Lord. Now here comes the test. The next place you look, still no keys. You keep looking, still no keys. Now you're thinking, right, God cares for me. It all seemed quite simple. You have to be somewhere. You lost your key to the car to get you to where you need to be. You ask God to help you locate your keys. And then our linear thinking says the key now shows up. Not that difficult. Here's what you don't know. 
Here's what we don't see. The delay might mean you're not involved in that car accident. That delay might mean you have an opportunity to bump into a friend later on as the two of you cross paths and she pours out your heart to you about a painful situation going on in her life. That delay means that God loves you so much that he wants to build character in your life that you're going to need later on. Casting requires humility. I must humble myself before God, trusting that he has it all under control, even when I cannot see it. And I won't cast it on him if I, in my pride, think secretly I can do a better job running my life. I won't cast it on him if in my pride I'm going to do it my way, as the song goes. Sometime this week, write down on a piece of paper the things that are troubling you right now. Just take some time, get out a sheet of paper before God, just write them down. Write down the things that are troubling you right now and then look at your list and ask how many of them are earth-shaking in their impact. Ask them, ask about them, which ones do you have no power to solve or change? Then turn the paper over and write 1 Peter 5, 7 on the back. What's keeping you, what's keeping me from handing that worry, that anxiety over to God? Will you acknowledge that it's some form of pride? Listen, we are so full of ourselves. We are. It's all about me, God. I'm here. Things go around me. What's the problem? We are so full of ourselves. Now remember the writer of these words. While these words are breathed by God and directed by him, it's the the man Peter whom God used to speak on humility. You're likely familiar with Peter's life as recorded for us in the gospel. He was the guy who opened up his mouth just long enough to switch feet, right? Right? He was the guy who felt denying Christ would never be an option. Not me. And sadly, we know, well-intentioned as he might have been, he could not live up to what he promised. And he failed miserably. Get this, all Peter, and he crashed. All Christ, and he became useful. Hudson Taylor was founder of the China Inland Mission, and on one occasion, someone said to him, You must sometimes be tempted, Mr. Taylor, to be proud because of the wonderful way God used you. I doubt if any man living has had greater honor. In this gracious word, Mr. Taylor replied, On the contrary, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use, and then he found me. What a perspective. We need to begin with a tax collector began in Luke 18, 13. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are you short on grace? It might be because you're too big on yourself. Too much of you, too much of me, and we will crash. More of Christ would become useful in his hands. Are you small enough for God? To use. Our prayer needs to be, Lord, we're tired of going our own way. We've been proud and self-sufficient, but we're broken here today. 
I'm going to ask the choir to come up. They're going to close out the service this morning with this prayer. It's what it is. It's the words that ought to be on all of our hearts this morning. I invite you. I invite you as they sing this song, as they pray these words, that they be your words. That you would come acknowledging your sin of self-sufficiency and pride. That you come broken before him, acknowledging that our power does not come from ourselves, but only as we seek after him. And folks, like I said, this isn't any, any less comfortable for me this morning. I can see areas in my life in leading this church where I've been too proud. It's been too much of me. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. No excuse for it. And God's been breaking me and breaking me to be humble. A long way to go. Long way to go. But we just surrender to him and say we can't do it in our own power and strength. Only as God leads us. That's it. And can you imagine? Can you imagine what God would do in our church if we were all broken before him on our face and said, God, it is not us. Because if it's about us, we'll crash. It's about you. We want to be useful in your hands. Can you imagine what will happen? Can you imagine? It might be a revival. Who knows what will happen out in the Westerlo area? Please, with me, ask for God to do that work of humility in your life. And where there's too much of you and whatever you're doing, say, I've got to submit it to you. Listen to these words. Let it be your words this morning as you pray them as we close out our service. Thank you.